doesn't mean it was part of his plan. What it means is that when sin entered the world and distorted the plan of God, God still had a game plan, and he's using everything that happens to accomplish his will. So there was a new anthropological study that found out that Jesus could not have possibly ever worn jewelry. Just wouldn't have happened at that time because they found out Jesus breaks every chain. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 172. If you're a first-time listener, we start every episode with a dad joke. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're a first-time listener, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. And if you've been listening for a while and haven't done that in a while, you can leave a second review. That You know, why not? It helps other people uh, get to know this podcast and grow deeper in their faith. So thank you for those of you who are sharing this. Make sure if you do that online, you tag us, uh, especially on Instagram, at Thought, Or you can find all of our social media handles and ways to contact us on our website manafoodforthought.com or manafft.com. And while you're there, click on the subscribe button to sign up for our weekly Psalm Reflection emails. And also click on the give button if you're interested in becoming a financial sponsor of this podcast. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a patron. And thank you so much to all of our patrons who keep this podcast on the air. And a special shout out to you. So without further ado, let's get into our joy, junk, and Jesus. Uh, my joy this week has been... Um, well, we had a uh, birthday party for one of Hannah's best friends, uh, so a five-year-old birthday party at a stable, so the kids got to ride horses, they got to brush a horse, and actually they got to paint a horse. I didn't know you could do this, but you can use like non-toxic, animal-friendly paint, and it actually feels like a massage if you're like finger painting or using little brushes on the side of a horse. They really like it, I guess. So yeah, our kids get to do that, got to do that. Um, and what's also really exciting is, you know, we, so we bought our house like five years ago and we've really been thinking like, okay, this was our starter home and we'll eventually buy another house. But, um, you know, we're just thinking like, well, not a good time to buy another house and we want to utilize the space better. So we're actually starting to like think about some little projects and things like that to really make the space that we're in function as best as it possibly can. Because when we moved in, we kind of just like, what's all the stuff we have? Let's just arrange it all. And then design it as best we can with just a, you know, a couple runs to some stores. But now I think we really want to look at like, okay, how do we really use this space well, maximize it? And so we're just, yeah, I'm excited for uh, some house projects. I love working around the house, fixing things, repairing things, making things more organized and multifunctional. So yeah, very excited for that. Um, so that's my joy. My junk is that... Um, we upgraded all of the like IT at our work. And I say we, meaning like people, people came in and did it who are smarter than me because I don't know how to do that. But uh, so people came and updated all of our, our firewall and wireless. And so all of our Wi-Fi stuff got reset. But the junk is all of the printers and the printers at our work, like every area has a different printer and you have to figure out like on your personal and your work computer getting them to like print is just like painstaking, you know, to like get all that working again. And I feel like I just got it working on my personal computer a little while ago. And now I'm sure I have to undergo all of that again. So kind of bummed about that. But um, yeah, it's a good thing that we've updated everything. It's going to be great. But um, yeah, that's just kind of one of those bummers and bumps in the road when that kind of stuff happens. So there's that. Uh, my Jesus moment was... Um, We've just been having like some visioning meetings and conversations about where we want to take things at the parish that I serve at and just really exciting momentum and stuff 
coming down the pipeline. So I'm just, I'm very excited for all that the Lord is doing, all the Holy Spirit's doing, and just guiding our pastor to us and all of our particular team members together. Um, it just seems like a really exciting time here. So we have a lot of potential and a lot of opportunity, and I'm just, I'm really jazzed. So yeah, pray that all that goes well. So let's get into our episode. We're reading the second reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and we are still in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, a powerhouse, and we're going to be reading one of my most quoted, if not my most quoted verses in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 28. Uh, but the reading is Romans 8, 28 to 30. And again, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a multicultural church comprised of Gentile and Jewish Christians, trying to figure out how do we function as church in this very multicultural pagan epicenter of emperor worship in Rome, and also figuring out our own traditions or lack thereof, what fits in Christianity, what needs to change, how do we work together, what's important, what's not. And so Paul is really trying to like get to the core. This is what it means to be a Christian. These other issues that you're facing, your arguments you're having, like set those aside because this is what it means to be saved. And so that's like kind of what Romans is all about. And Romans chapter 8, ton of probably the most quotable verses in the New Testament come out of Romans and especially this central chapter of Romans uh, and particularly one of the verses we're going to be reading. So let's dive in. So this is Romans chapter 8 verses 28 to 30. Paul writes to the church in Rome. Brothers and sisters, we know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the second part of this passage can be a little confusing. Um, you know, there's some words in here that, that might be a little theological. But basically what this is saying is that um, he... he Everyone he foreknew. So he knew all of us from the foundation of, of the world. And so that means he predestined all of us, meaning we were all created for the purpose of heaven. But that doesn't mean we don't have free will. So this isn't like predestination or what you might call double predestination in Calvinism, where they believe that God uh, creates people knowing that they are going to go to hell. And he, he intends a certain number of people to go to heaven and a certain number of people to go to hell. That is not what Catholicism believes. It says in the catechism, God predestines no one to go to hell. Okay, so everyone is created for heaven, by God, for relationship with God. And so everyone is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we might all be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, so that we might all be part of this family. And then he says, among those he predestined, so all of us, he also called. He called all of us. And because he calls all of us, he also justifies us, meaning that he died, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we could attain salvation. We can't earn it. We can't justify our own uh, ability to be saved. Only Jesus can do that. And because he justifies us, he also glorifies us. He gives us the opportunity to experience sanctification through ongoing justification, ongoing works of mercy, ongoing acts of service and good works so that we might be glorified with God in heaven and we might glorify God in all that we say and do. So that's a little theology for you in Romans 8. But the, uh, the verse I always quote is that we know that all things work for good for those who love God or called according to his purpose, that like God wants your good. And I know I, I say a lot about this, so I want to go in a little bit different of a direction here. But I, I want to talk about that, that, that word we know, and also this idea that like for those he foreknew, he also predestined. That like God knew 
everything that was going to happen, knows everything that's going to happen before it does, and is working for our good. And what's interesting is where it says, we know that all things work at the beginning of this passage. There are actually several words in Greek for the word know. There's at least seven or eight. But what Paul does is he uses the word oidamen, uh, or oidamen, which, which is like the most certain, the strongest word for know. It means like to be certain. And so the two of the most common words for know are gnosko and oida in Greek. And so the word used here is a derivation of oida. Um, but gnosko basically means like to have knowledge of, you know, or you're in the progress of knowledge you're, or you're learning, you're understanding. Um, but oida suggests like the fullness of knowing, like fully and completely knowing someone. So it's the difference between saying like, I know about you or I know you. I know you, I see you, like I'm in a relationship with you. And so that kind of level of certainty is what Paul uses here when he says like, we know emphatically, like we understand everything, all things work for good for those who love God. And this reminds me, there's this great passage in Ephesians chapter one, right as Paul is opening this letter at the very beginning, he gives a little two verse address. And then he goes into this basically similar plan or similar uh, explanation of God's plan for salvation and how it's fulfilled in Christ. And we have that inheritance through the spirit. It's this very Trinitarian presentation of this message. And he uses phrases like in verse four, he says of Ephesians chapter one, he says, uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And later on in verse 9 and 10, in all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will in accord with his favor that he set forth in him as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ in heaven and on earth. And it continues in 11, in him, we were also chosen, destined in accord with the purpose of the one who accomplishes all things according to the attention of his will, so that we might exist for the praise of his glory. And it goes on. So I really encourage you, like read the second reading, but also read it. Uh, Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 for really good like kind of idea of this like the whole work of God the economy of God and salvation like the way that God has revealed himself through time first his father then his son then his spirit has all been for our good for our sanctification and he's had a plan from the foundation of the world and so I was reading this verse in wisdom uh, chapter 11 and it goes into verse 12 or chapter 12 where it says how could a thing remain unless you willed it or be preserved had it not been called forth by you. But you spare all things because they are yours, O ruler and lover of souls, for your imperishable spirit is in all things. You know, this past Sunday, we had the parable of the weeds and the wheat of like, you know, do we pull out these bad things or this question of like, why do these bad things exist? Why can't we just get rid of them? Why can't God get rid of them? And it's because if you uproot the weeds, it can hurt the wheat. Like if God just removes everything bad, we somehow think that that will be utopia, that will be perfect. But we don't recognize if we don't have struggle, if we don't have suffering, if we don't have those things, we lose the ability for bravery and courage and sacrifice and real sacrificial, authentic love. Everything just becomes this kind of beige, neutral, you know, easy, complacent middle ground where nobody tries hard because nobody suffers. Nobody sacrifices because there's nothing hard. Everything's handed to us. And so this idea we have of a perfect world without suffering cannot really be made um, present or made known until we've had that experience of suffering so we know what it is that God is bringing out of it and what it is God is saving us from. And so in wisdom, it's saying like, you know, none of this here is happening unless you are allowing it to happen, Lord. And so it doesn't mean that God plans it or he wills it. It doesn't mean it was part of his plan. What it means is that when sin entered the world and distorted the plan of God, God still had a game plan. And he's using everything that happens to accomplish his will. 
And so that everything that remains that he's allowing to happen, he will use for some good purpose later. Everything that he actively does or causes is good. He cannot do anything evil. It's not in his nature. But he allows us to do evil or evil to exist as a result of sin in the world because it respects our free will. But he promises on top of that that he will use it for our greatest good. And so this begs a question for me. It's been, you know, giving me reflection on you know, how have things worked for good in my own life? How have I realized like there is a point and a purpose to all of this? Because God sees that. God, God is telling us in the readings there is a point and purpose to all of this. Even the bad, even the most horrific is illuminating something in you or somewhere in the world to lead to some good. Now, could there have been a greater good if things had worked out differently and sin hadn't entered the world? We don't know that. But we know because sin entered the world, we experience grace all the more. We experience what Jesus Christ came to do for us. And so we say, like, oh, happy fault. Like, it's, it's good in one sense that sin entered the world because now we have the experience of a Savior. And we know the ramifications of sin. We know the ramifications of grace. If all we had been given was a perfect world, we may never have been able to appreciate the fullness of that goodness and the glory of God because it's all we would have known. But we can't know those things. What we're dealing with now is our reality. How do we know this? And interestingly enough, when I was thinking about this, it made me reflect on the story of a woman in the Old Testament named Rahab. Now, you may know the story. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 2. But basically what happens, we all know the story kind of of Moses and the Exodus. And he leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness and they wander there for 40 years. And then they're finally allowed to enter the promised land. But Moses does not lead them. His predecessor, Joshua, leads them. And as they enter into the promised land, or as they're about to, you know, kind of in the process of taking it over, I guess I should say, they're coming across all these big superpowers. And so they have this massive ancient city of Jericho. And I believe the city of Jericho is like the longest uh, standing uh inhabited city in history or something like that that we're aware of like jericho's been around forever i think that's jericho correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure so we have this instance here where they encounter jericho which is this massive walled city and god tells them that they're going to take jericho so they send out these spies to uh report on the strength of jericho so these spies uh two spies infiltrate the city of jericho and basically, they are lodged and kept safe in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And word gets to the officials in Jericho that these spies are there. And, you know, word has gotten around as to what the, these Jewish people have been able to do. They've conquered certain kings, uh, Og of Bashan and the king, uh, you know, other kings in the area. Uh, I think the king of Moab and like other areas. And uh, this word has gotten around. And so they're trying to like overtake these spies or get rid of these Jewish people like as soon as possible. But Rahab hides them on her roof, and she basically tells them, like, look, I, I know why people are afraid of you. We've heard what you did to Sihon and to Og, the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan whom you destroyed. Um, and so she's basically saying, like, I'm showing kindness to you. Can you, in turn, show kindness to my family? Give me a sign. And so they basically say, like, if you don't betray us, we pledge, we will show kindness to you when the Lord gives us this city and this land. So she lets them down her window uh, because she lives up against the city wall. And they basically, they give her this red cord to tie in her window so that when they come to take the city, that they'll know that she is the one who kept them safe. They'll come into their house, escort them out before they destroy the city. And so 
that happens in Joshua chapter 6. They march around the city seven times for seven days, and on the seventh day they do it seven times, and they blow their horns, and the walls of Jericho come down, and they completely destroy the city. But when they do this, Joshua tells them, go into Rahab's house, get her family out, escort them out, uh, and then the entire city and everything and everyone in it is destroyed or burned. Um, and so the only people who survive this are Rahab and her family, like of this entire massive walled city. I mean, we have no idea how many people. Now, we will say like the Bible does exaggerate these things for literary device because we see this happen all the time, especially in like Joshua and Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, when they're talking about overtaking the promised land that they like completely destroy every man, woman, and child and everything in the city and they take it. That's a literary device because a lot of these cities that are left completely destroyed, a few chapters later, we hear there are people in these cities giving the Jewish people problems. Like, so this doesn't constitute a literal reality or God condoning some type of genocide. What's happening is that these cities that are practicing these destructive methods of paganism, emperor, or, um, sacrificial worship to fake gods, uh, doing things that are immoral, they're going to be destroyed by their actions. Like naturally it will lead to their destruction. So God allows the things that they're doing for destructive purposes to lead to something good for the people of God who will eventually redeem the world. So he's using these, these natural path of destruction these people have created for themselves and allowing it to be brought about in a particular way so that he can preserve something good. Okay, so it's not like God actively wanted to destroy the people of Jericho. Jericho was going to be destroyed because of their sinfulness and idolatry. It would naturally happen because of the destructive nature of sin. So God is using the opportunity to use that destruction for some greater purpose. Okay, so a lot of these different caveats come up when we read these Old Testament stories. So I thought that was important to explain. But back to Rahab. The amazing thing about this, this entire story, the city of, of Jericho, apparently completely destitute. They're the only family that survives. Who is Rahab? What happens to her after? Rahab has a son named Boaz. And you might remember that Boaz ends up marrying Ruth in the book of Ruth. And that Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes the king of Israel. Rahab is the great-great-grandmother of King David. And that God knew generations before King David would even be alive and rule, that he needed to preserve this lineage of the Messiah to lead to David. Because you can trace this messianic lineage like all the way back to Adam in the Bible, to Abraham, to the patriarchs of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, or Jacob, Joseph, all, or Judah, I think is the tribe that Jesus is in, you know, whichever. Tracing them through all of these individuals, all the way to King David and all the way to Jesus. That God knew when Joshua, 1,000, 1,500 years before Jesus, this is like 3,000, 4,000 years ago, God knew that he would need to preserve Rahab so that she could one day have a great-grandson named King David, who 26 generations later would bear the relative Joseph, through whom the Messianic line would be traced, because he is the earthly father of Jesus through whom the earthly Messiah, the person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the pers personage of God would dwell in this person, Jesus, come as our Messiah, our Savior. God knew that that was happening, and he was already crafting the plot, the storyline for that, 
generations, 30 generations before. So many years. Do you not see that the God who can do that is the God who is working in your life? This is what struck me so much, brothers and sisters, when I read this verse in Romans. We know that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We know that because we have evidence in the Bible and in history of a God who is playing the long game and who is working in such detailed ways in creation to preserve the good he is intending to do and has been intending to do for us since the very beginning. And so, brothers and sisters, I just want to say, like, if you're enduring hardships, like, you may think you're enduring these hardships. But St. Teresa, she said that when we get to heaven, the worst possible life or, or suffering will only be seen as one night in an inconvenient hotel in comparison to the glory of heaven. Think about the most horrible life of suffering. That person will see their life on earth only as simply a night in an inconvenient hotel when they're experiencing the glory of heaven. You may not see the purpose now, and it may seem inescapable what you are going through, but trust that God is preserving you for something intentional, purposeful, and redemptive. He has not forgotten you. You are on this trajectory of this great plan, and he's thinking 30-plus generations into the future, and he has been thinking 30-plus generations into the future forever, so that you could exist. He knew you would exist and willed you into existence generations ago and caused certain people to have certain actions, certain individuals to get married, have children, so that you would exist thousands of years later. So if you, brothers and sisters, are hearing this, if you are breathing, know that God is not done with you and he has a plan for you. He will call you home when he is ready. So whatever you are facing, trust that God is working to bring good from it because he delivers on his promises 100% of the time. You may be listening to this on the worst day of your life. You may be listening to this in a place of complete and utter hopelessness, feeling like your life isn't worth anything, that you might want to take your life. You may even have a plan to do that. And you may have struggled with that in the past, but you may be feeling that at this very moment. And I just want you to hear the truth of these words, to know that God knew from the foundation of the world that you would be here in this moment. And if he willed for your, your life to end, he would do it. It's not his will. And so trust, know with certainty that no matter how terrible what you are going through looks like now, it compares in no way to the glory of what God has promised you, to the glory of what is to come. And to the good that God is going to bring out of whatever the suffering is, either in this life or the next. But it's not up to us when and how we experience that. Because we are not the plan maker. We have to be attentive to the ways in which God has moved in history and in the Bible to remind us and explain to us, this is the God who you worship. This is the God who is in charge. So do not worry. Have no fear. Because he has you in the palm of his hands. He is thinking from the beginning of time to the very end, all at once, he sees every possible plan, every possible choice, and he already has a game plan for your salvation. He already has a game plan for your abundance and for your greatest possible good. So maybe 
instead of us wallowing in self-pity or in suffering, instead of us trying to take our lives into our own hands, instead of us thinking that there is no way out, to maybe just take a moment to let go and trust that God knows exactly what he's doing. And maybe what I need to do is just stop derailing the plan with my bad decisions or with my selfishness or my pride or my sins. Maybe I just need to let him have control. And that doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect or comfortable or good, but it will be better. And even if more suffering comes your way, even if more than you're enduring now comes your way, the lens through which you're experiencing it, the perspective you have will help you see this is working towards something good. And when you start to experience that good and you begin to look in retrospect, you see the genius and the mastermind of God at work. You will know that I needed everything that I experienced before to get to where I am now. And I would not be able to experience or appreciate this abundance and this glory that God has given me had I not endured that suffering. Could I have avoided some of that suffering and pain because yeah, I could have chosen not to sin or not to make bad decisions. Absolutely. But God is still going to bring good from it. And you have no idea what good he could have brought had you not made those decisions. Who knows? It may even be a better good. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That doesn't mean we keep sinning. That doesn't mean we keep living in a way that doesn't glorify God because we want more later on that's good. No. God wants us to experience his goodness now. And so I just trust. I'm asking you to trust, brothers and sisters. If you're doubting today, if you're in despair when you're hearing this, if you're in a moment where you just feel like not connected to God, you're going through some kind of hardship or worry or discernment, you don't know what to do, trust that the God of Rahab, the God of David, the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ knows what he's doing and has known since the very beginning. I am praying for you. Please pray for me. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.